Good morning. Yeah, it's still morning. The, um, like for those people who want to use the uh, message notes, I'll make a few corrections here so that you'll be accurate and you'll be able to find it. The message actually is Colossians, not Galatians 3, verses chapter 9 through 17. That would be a hard one to match, but Colossians 3, 9 through 17. And uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 should be 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Now, uh, and I probably won't be using Romans 7 and 8. So that will help you a little bit. Um, the problem is probably my handwriting. I turned in those numbers, and uh, to get those, it was probably my problem. So just to help you a little bit there. Last week, uh, Hoyt shared with you that he wanted to preach a series of sermons on the book of Philippians, and yet it isn't every week that he gets to preach, so he's just going to stick with it, and I, and I was impressed with that, and uh, I like that. And I preached a month ago, so or more, and I thought it would be kind of good. Maybe I'll follow suit, right? And I'm going to do a part two of part one that I didn't know was part one at the time. So in, my, in the message in December, I talked about Joshua and how he called upon God's people to consecrate themselves for the Lord and, and, and that they was going to do amazing things through them as they faced the, the promised land and the Jordan River crossing. Uh, basically, Joshua called the people to separate themselves from anything that would contaminate their relationship with God, anything that would affect that, that relationship to God. It's a call to, to individual preparation and holiness. But as I've been praying and, and reading the Bible in the past six months, I've been very focused on our church and its future and its future leadership as a, as a concern and a burden. And as I have prayed and recently fasted with the pastor search committee, I was first convicted that a preparation to call up a pastor in leadership is a preparation to get ready as a church. And first of all, it's a, it's a need to consecrate ourselves and prepare ourselves in our relationship to God. Um, and then I became impressed that part two of that, not only do we need to be right with God and have anything that's affecting us removed, but we also then need to eliminate anything that would affect our relationship to each other. And so we need to be unified. If we go forward, it's always best to go forward together. And it is important that, that we keep that unity that we appear to have and that we would want to be maintained. So today I'd like to go to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians, there's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I believe that's the order you want. It's one of those little ones, but it's powerful. Paul has a lot to say. And so it's in chapter 3, starting with the ninth verse. And it starts out, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, 
And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, we ask you to speak to us through your word, prepare our hearts and speak in the areas that you want to, Lord, help us to be receptive. We just pray, Lord, that what we say and what we proclaim will be true to your word and that it will be beneficial to each of us. So we thank you, Lord, for your presence and ask, Father, for your power to help us to understand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in Colossians 3, uh, it kind of gives us, let's just take a look at what, uh, let's look at what a unified First Baptist Church in Mount Shasta should look like. See if we measure up. And uh, so let's go to, first of all, we see it'd be, made, it'd be a church made up of people who have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, first of all. They're baptized by people who proclaimed and have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they would come from all nations and walks in life. A church that's unified has room for everyone and there are no barriers between them. He speaks of barriers that the people had to overcome in the early church. He speaks of, uh, of, the, of the Greeks and the Jews. Now the Greeks were basically intellectual snobs. They believed they knew the answers and they had the Greek language, which is the only language worth using and, and knowing. And so they kind of separated themselves from everybody else. Everybody else was kind of like barbarians if you couldn't speak Greek. And so they had the, 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 there were the Greeks and then there were the Jews who thought they were God's chosen people and the only ones that God was interested in. And they were special. And so you have these two, the barrier between these people was broken in the early church. There was no barrier between them. He talks about the circumcised and the uncircumcised and the different ways culturally that they ex- expressed themselves. He talked about the barbarians and the Scythians. The barbarians were were the rabble, and the Scythians were the really bad rabble. And they didn't even, they didn't even get along with the barbarians because they were the, some really uh, vicious people that came down from southern Russia at the time. And then there was the slave and the free. And the slave was, uh, basically had no rights. They were owned, and they were not even considered uh, people per se. And then there were the free. The free and the slave didn't really have a relationship. But in the early church, when people found Jesus Christ, he found among the Greeks and the Jews and the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the barbarians, the Scythians. Whenever they came to know Christ and came into the body of Christ, the church, the barriers were broken and there were no divisions. They say that the, 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 the ground in front of the cross is level. It's an old saying. It's available to anyone who will come and bow down before the Lord and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that can be anyone who will do that, become a part of the family, of God and part of the church, and there is no division. So in the pews here, we could have the judge and we could have the jury. <laughs> you know, we could have them both sharing a pew. We could have the, uh, the, the law enforcement and, the, and the, the doctor, the disabled, the black, the Indian, the Chinese, the Hispanic, the wealthy, the poor, the businessman, the intellectual, the high school dropout, the Dodger and Giant fans, Hey, if we come to know the Lord, we can all sit in the same pew and be a part of the same church. The barriers are broken down because we are united in Christ. And that, that makes us all in one family. So let me share with you a wonderful old hymn that many of you may have learned in years past. We don't sing as much as, as we used to. But I will, it's called The Family of God, and I won't sing it to you. 
but I will read it to you. I will show a little mercy here. <coughs> I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family of God. You will notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and we're so near. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. From the door of an orphanage to the house of the king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags into riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God I belong. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family of God. We are united as a church where Christ is, is all, it's all about him, and he's in all of us. And that unites the church and it is, a, is the unity that we need to remember and cherish. A united church would be a church that puts off its old self without Christ as Lord and Savior and puts on the new righteousness and garments that God gives us. Some of the old things he mentions in verses 5 through 11 that we need to get rid of Right away, right away, he mentions sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry and covetousness. These things need to be eliminated and put to death. And he mentions other things that need to be taken off, like clothing that comes from an old life, or an old wardrobe, you might say. Lying, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language all need to be put off, taken off, dumped. It would be also a unified church, a church that deliberately puts on the garments of the Lord, the righteousness of Christ. Puts on those new qualities that come from our new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are done away with. Everything's become new. You become a new man, a new woman in the Lord. So we need to put on those things of the new life and put off the things of the old one. So I want to share with you some things he says that need to be put on in the church, if there's going to be a unified church. The first thing he mentions is compassion. Literally, the word means bowels of sympathy. The ancients believed that the emotions originated in the bowels. We kind of hold on to a little bit of that when we say, I had a gut feeling. That's kind of a similar idea. We get it down deep. I recently read a story of the little girl who was asked to describe the parts of man. She said, man has three parts, the brainium, the chester, and the abominable cavity. Now the brainium holds the brain, the chester holds the heart, and the abominable cavity holds the bowels, of which there are five, A, E, I, O, and U. Okay. Hopefully we don't have that kind of understanding of compassion. Actually, compassion is what we call a heart of pity. It's a sense of sympathy and empathy with someone. Jesus was moved with compassion. His heart was turned as he saw those who were hungry, and those who were sick and crippled or blind, those suffering from spiritual confusion, those who've been cut off from the church and society due to their sin, and those who were suffering grief from the loss of loved ones. Wherever he went, he was moved with compassion for those who needed his help. We need to have that kind of compassion. 
We see need and we're moved by it. It affects us in our heart. And then there's kindness. We should put on kindness, it said. An action that reveals compassion arises out of compassion. Now, a lot of us feel something. We feel empathy. We feel sympathy for somebody. But then kindness actually does something about it. It's one of the things that that convicted me as I'm studying the word is I often see something that moves me. I feel sympathy. But how does anybody know? Do I show kindness? Kindness is, a, is the active part of, of compassion. And how do you do that? Well, it could be in a hostile looking crowd, you give somebody a smile or a wink. That could be an act of kindness. A kind word. Maybe it's a pat on the shoulder, an invitation to lunch, an offer to help, or maybe even a hug. I remember the story in, in, uh, in Mark chapter one Let's, let's go there real quickly. Mark chapter 1, you see a demonstration in Jesus' life of, of this kindness. Mark chapter 1. Verses 40 to 42. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Leprosy is an awful disease. Parts of the body fall off. It deteriorates in skin and sores. It's, it keeps you away from people. Jesus, it said, was filled with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Leprosy was a disease that separated you from people. You couldn't live in your home with your family. You couldn't go to church. You, you had to go and warn people within 100 feet of you and yell, unclean, unclean, so they wouldn't get too close. You lived by yourself. You suffered alone. This man took great boldness to come to Jesus and ask for his help. And Jesus, all we see, has the power to just say it, and it happens. But Jesus didn't just do that. You notice for no apparent reason, he touched the leper. And then he said, be clean. It wasn't the touch that did it. It was the be clean. But the touch was what the man really needed. He hadn't been touched in a long time. He hadn't been loved. It was an act of kindness. And compassion needs to move to the acts of kindness. If there is, it brings unity, it brings love and, and acceptance. Humility is the third thing mentioned here. It's the chief Christian virtue is humility because it's the exact opposite of the greatest sin in God's word, which is pride. As the apostle put it, is to regard others as better than ourselves, not to consider ourselves or ideas in any way superior to others. Even Jesus was willing to wash his disciples' feet, and that wasn't his job. He sat himself as the leader of the group, to be a servant of the group, and wash their feet because there was no one else to do it. It's this idea of humility. Nothing is too small for me to do. Nothing is for others I would not be willing to do. And he left his place in heaven, Jesus did, as equal with God and, and felt and came to live and dwell with us, an act of humility and giving of himself. And then it moves into gentleness, sometimes translated meekness. It doesn't mean milk toast or wimpy. It means uh, it's basically strength under control. Two people who are described as immensely meek in God's word were Jesus and Moses. And you wouldn't call them wimps. They were powerful, but the, 
but even Jesus described himself as meek and lowly in heart. It is a, a willingness to waive one's rights for the needs of others. Do not demand that you be satisfied for the sake of others you're willing to suffer loss. Jesus was willing to go to the cross. And yet, as the song said, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. There is a meekness. He had the power, but he put it under his control, put it under control and served the needs of others. So that meekness doesn't mean, you know, you have a right to be right and you have a right to dictate yourself and assert yourself, but meekness says, I'm not gonna use my power over other people, but I'm gonna use it to serve other people. And then there's patience. Patience is a tough one, but we are called to have patience, and this is patience with people. It means long-suffering, the enduring of another's exasperating conduct, conduct without flying on a rage or saying something harsh and being upset. It means patience with people. In a church this size, you have any people that you have an issue with, personality-wise? You ever have somebody that rubs you the wrong way? That sometimes you feel a little tension? Well, patience is patience with people. We all need it, but it means that you're willing to go the extra mile. You're willing to, to literally be long-suffering and endure this aspirating person and still love them and not go into a rage. It's possible, but that's the kind of patience we're talking about. And then it moves into forbearance, talking about bear with one another. It's kind of similar to patience that goes, instead of holding back anger or holding back a bad word or a, a harsh word, we actually bear one another. It's, uh, it's to uphold and support or encourage somebody to go and bear a little longer with, one, with a person. Um, one of the servants of, of God was Barnabas, who was known as the son of encouragement. He's one of the, the men that took and helped Paul get started in his missionary journeys and get accepted by the disciples. He introduced him and helped him and encouraged Paul. And when he went on a missionary journey with Paul on his first trip, uh, he encouraged Paul. And then he, they took a man by the name of John Mark, a young man, had a lot to learn who, who uh, didn't make it. He ran out on him and went back home. And next time they went to go on a trip, Paul said, I don't want a quitter on my team. And Barnabas said, I'll take him. Gave him a second chance. He was an encourager. And later we see Mark being of great value to Paul when he was in prison. And when the, when the, the church in Jerusalem was hurting financially and going hungry because they were being cut off from their jobs for their faith, Barnabas took a valuable piece of land and sold it so they could help them and used it to help the church and gave it to them. He was an encourager. He bear with one another, go the extra mile with somebody and encourage them and support other people. Not just be patient with them, but actually support and encourage them. And then there's the valuable gift that we need to put on, which is forgiveness. No matter how we try, Sometimes we, we do things or experience things from people that need to be forgiven. It says we're not supposed to forgive as the Lord forgave us. And how did he forgive us? Pretty much without reservation and qualifications. It says he removed it from his sight and he forgave us completely and he holds it against us no longer. He doesn't bring it up to us. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't, he doesn't bring it to our, our mind. 
We sometimes have a difference. We should air it. We should be honest. But once we get it worked out and forgive the person, we need to forget it. Don't bring it up again. It's important in our marriages. We get something worked out. Don't keep bringing it up. Forgive. Forget. Jesus, again, was our model. He forgave them from the cross because they don't know what they're doing. He forgave the ones that spit on him and kicked him and ridiculed him and killed him. He forgave like that, and we're supposed to forgive like that. Follow his example. Remember Peter, his leader of the group, the one who was going to go to war with for him, denied Jesus three times, and Jesus forgave him. He gave him a new, new call and a new assurance. The Old Testament tells us that when we come to him, he casts our transgressions into the depths of the sea. And like Corey Ten Boom said, and you put up a sign that says no fishing. Leave it alone. It's over. It's necessary for unity in the church for forgiveness. As I'm talking about, I'm just reminded of, of this kinds of spirit I saw in my father one time and we were having conflict in the church. Somebody accused him of offending his wife in a business meeting. It tells you there's a problem right there. But, and my dad was, didn't do that. He talked to the pastor, what should they do? And he got up, I remember, at a, in the church, in front of the church, and apologized for something he didn't do. And I was a kid, and I said, don't do that, Dad. Fight it out. He has no right to do that to you. But for the sake of the body, he stood up and apologized for something he'd never done. And it's a powerful lesson I've never forgotten because he had the power to be right. But he, he submitted to the need of others and, and then he didn't hold a grudge against that man. Anyway, forgiveness in the spirit of God is another thing. So I've got a series of seven beautiful things that we should put on that are, that are, that are and, and together they express the character of Jesus and put on Jesus basic in our lives. And then he finally says, at the end he says, now love and love all these virtues, but, but put on all these virtues, but on, put, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect love over all the other virtues. Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul often brings it back to the fundamental of love and he says, now you put on all these certain clothes, and I'll put an overcoat over of love that covers them all. And that brings about great unity in the body and that it might fit together perfectly. And that's the agape love, the love of God, which always seeks what's best for others. They will know we are Christians by our love is based on Jesus' instructions to his disciples. And he gave them a new commandment that you love one another. And if you love each other, you will, they'll know you're my disciples. Now, we need to put that righteousness on every day. Some, you know, it's like, do I have to change clothes every day? You know, but we need to put them on every day because it's not necessarily going to be a natural thing for us to do these things if we don't communicate with God and put these things on. Just like the scripture talks about, Paul says, put on the armor of God every day. We need to do that. Or like, like Jesus said in Luke 9, 13, if you want to follow me, t uh, deny yourself, Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's a daily thing to put on a, the, the character of Christ and to follow him. And now Paul tells us a unified church is a church that should let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The word let it rule has to do with an umpire. I know what an umpire is. 
I used to coach baseball, and I watched a lot of baseball. And Empire, when it comes to a conflict, is supposed to be the last word until they came out with uh, replay. There it is. Yeah, ruined everything for umpires. They don't get. They still get to call a lot of plays, but in the in the youth baseball and in different places, the umpire, or if it's an official on the basketball court, they they bring order to things, and they they make it they make it work. If we, as we're living, we wonder sometimes what we're supposed to do, and we have conflicts in our hearts about what's right and what's wrong. When I was a young pastor in Dunsmuir, I, I think I was 28 or something, and I'd already had three years of pastoring experience, you know, so I should have known everything. But I had these people would come immediately and ask me these questions, and they would say, and they'd set me up, and they'd say, is it always wrong to dance? Is it okay to drink alcohol? Should I play cards? Can I go to movies? Can I get divorced? They asked me these questions. And they were kind of wanting me to tell them. And if they could, it was like if I could get, if I could tell them the right answer that they wanted, then they had approval. And they would, you know, feel good. So I had to, you know, if I knew a scripture that would just tell it the way it was, I'd do it. But basically I said, in my youth wisdom, I said, uh, I would just remind them if they are a Christian and Christ lives in them, he can show them what's right. Doesn't need me to tell them. And if you do it and you feel that the Holy Spirit speaking to you inside, it's wrong, then it's wrong. So basically I said, let the Christ that lives in you be the umpire. When you have an issue and you don't know what's to do, what the right thing, right choice to make, let him be the umpire. Let him be the one who rules in you. If you receive Jesus Christ not only as your Savior, but now you turn your life over to him as the Lord, and he will guide you into what is right. And you have a guidance inside that will lead you and let him rule in your life, and you'll have things the way they should be. I used to uh, watch my youngest son, Mark, play with his best friend, Josh, when they were young. And they would go to the city ballpark, and they would get a plastic bat and a tennis ball. And they go down to Dunsmuir City Park along the freeway. And then we had really, I had a good friend who was the maintenance man at the park. And he used to tell me that I have a name for those boys. I call them the Bickersons. Because all they really do is bicker. They come with their, with their bat and their ball. And they argue for 60 minutes about the rules before they start playing. To make sure they're in agreement. Then they play for 10 minutes. And then they go home and for 30 minutes they argue over who won and who lost. They never could get, get it all worked out, but they did this day after day. We need to be thankful because without an umpire, things can get like that in our Christian lives. We need to be thankful that the Lord's about his authority in our life. The Lord's brought peace with God to us with his death and burial and resurrection, and he's able to guide us into all truth and peace with other people. We're not left without guidance in this new life. We're not orphans in this world, but we have God living in us. My years of uh, in, in working at a school in Dunsmuir, and I was a bus driver, coaching, and I did substitute teaching, driving bus, pastored the church, and my heart often ached as I watched children abandoned by their parents with no guidance, no discipline, and no love. See, Jesus didn't save us and do that to us. He saved us and came to dwell in us and to be the, the empire of our life and to help us to find our way, bring meaning to our life. The unified church is a body with a peace that comes from having a Lord to rule and lead us in our lives in such a way that we have peace with God and peace with others. 
And then he says, a, a united church lets the word of Christ dwell in them richly. Dwell means to make your home. Let the word of God make its home in our hearts. Allow it to dwell in us richly. He's talking about the book, the Bible. It's not just a book that we have to find before we go to church, you know, or go to Sunday school. It's a book that's supposed to dwell and live in us. And so when we're on the telephone and we're talking to our friend, somehow the scripture comes up. Something God taught me or, or some guidance. Or maybe I'm on Facebook and I'm interacting and I want to throw something in that I learned from God's word today. Or maybe, uh, God forbid, you're at a coffee shop. I don't drink coffee, but I see a lot of folks that can't live without it. We got coffee shops in every corner and Starbucks in every town. But when we get together for coffee, wouldn't it be great if people heard in the conversation things that God has been teaching us from God's word or hear the word being discussed at a restaurant or a neighborhood or a ball game or an exercise club or the grocery store or at work. Saturating our lives, dwelling so richly in us that it flows out wherever we go in our conversations. As we end, it says, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your life since he remembers we are called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you interact with each other. We need to share what God has told us through the word and help others find Jesus. And he will if we share him. And then it says, and we are to Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts. Did you know that in the Bible it says 24 times it tells us to sing? It's there. It's uh, come, you know, we're supposed to uh, make a joyful noise and come to his gates with thanksgiving. The unified church loves the word of God and lets it saturate their heart and soul and minds and dwell in them richly, and they sing about Jesus. Through singing, they learn more about Jesus and they share him with those who are singing with them. I learned a lot about God's word over the years growing up in the church from the message of songs. Songs that became a part of our heart and mind. I know the debates about drums. Used to have people come to our church because we didn't have drums. And so they didn't want to go to a place that had drums. And unfortunately, I had four drummers and nobody to play with them. So anyway... But we have those, those conflicts. We argue about the volume. We have differences about choruses as opposed to hymns. We have differences about choirs compared to the guitar. We have all these different things about music. And I've crossed from when I became a Christian in the 50s to now this year. That's a long time. I've seen a lot of different things about music. But I, uh, I have this to say about music, free for you. If it seeks to lift up Jesus, I'm for it. If it teaches me about Jesus, I'm for it. If it puts to music the word of God and magnifies the Lord of the gospel, I'm for it. I'm for God being lifted up in whatever way you want to do it. Some of it's pretty croaky, and some of it's pretty high-pitched, and some of it's really good. But whatever it is, if we lift Jesus up, I'm for it. Let's sing. Let's sing to God and let him be glorified. If you don't like singing, you're going to really hate heaven. My understanding is there's going to be a lot of singing and praising God by the angels. So uh, we need to be willing to do that. When we sing, we not only worship God, but we also share the truths of the songs with those around us. 
We may not sing well, but we can make a joyful noise. When I was a, a kid, first became a Christian, they had church twice in the same day, morning and evening. I thought we had a double blessing back when I was a kid. And uh, we'd go at night, but the pastor didn't want to preach the long sermon to the same people in the morning, so we had a lot more singing and testimony time. So we sang favorites. You picked the song you wanted to sing, and the pianist hopefully could figure out how to sing it. And our, our song leader had just two-two time or whatever. It went back and forth like this, and he was the, con- he was the town drunk who got saved and was my first Sunday school teacher. He was, also the, he was also the song leader. And I don't think anybody ever sang better as a congregation with anybody than this old Brother Andy. And he'd get us to sing. And uh, when we first became Christian, I didn't know very many songs. I only knew two because they were my mom's Bible that the pastor gave her when she got married. And it was the old rugged cross and uh, in the garden. So when they picked that one, man, I knew it. And I was excited. But what happened is because everybody sang with all their hearts, no matter how bad they were, that I could go ahead as a kid. See, I'm not that loud as a person, but when it comes to singing, I can let her, let her rip because... I could sing as loud as I wanted, no matter what I was doing there, and nobody could hear me. It was cool. We all blended together, and I didn't know who the guy was that missed the notes because we all sang together and praised God, and it was an exciting thing. God's people should be united in singing to the Lord no matter what our personal taste in music or musical ability. Enough said. The United Church is a people who know and love the word of God because it tells them more about Jesus. They love to sing about him to each other and share what they have learned about him. Small groups, Sunday school, the sermons, the prayers, the songs, all should be centered around the word of God and around Jesus Christ our Lord. Final encouragement from Paul in this chapter is in the very last verse. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christ is all and he's in all in the church. Jesus who saved us and is changing us into the image of God Whatever we do in the community, in the church, or at home, we need to do it in the name of Jesus and bring glory to him with that. And if we do that, there will be unity in the church, not just in the building, but throughout our lives as we go out and minister in the world. I think it's important, and I believe this is a neat church with a lot of love and a lot of unity, but it's something you need to cherish. We need to preserve. We need to work at because unity causes God to move forward in his church. His purposes go forward and he's glorified when we're together under his lordship. Not only do we need to get right with God and consecrate ourselves as we go to the future, but we need to stay united, hand in hand, heart to heart, under our Lord Jesus Christ, serving him and loving him. So let me give you two scriptures. One of them is in your note things and the other one isn't uh, that kind of summarize from God's word. Galatians chapter three. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So Galatians is just a little farther back. Galatians chapter three, verses 26 to 28. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 15. This isn't in your notes, 15, five through six. supposed to be after Acts. There it is. 15 verses 5 through 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart 
in one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A great scripture summarizes the, the teaching that I would desire to share with you. So I do pray for unity in this family of God at First Baptist Church in Mount Chester as we prepare for the great things God is going to do in the future in our body. Summarize the message. If we in last week's, if we last time, if we consecrate ourselves to the Lord, cleanse and dedicate our lives, and unify as God's chosen people, we will clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. We will live under the lordship of our Lord and Savior. We will fill our hearts and minds with the Word of God and sing the great truths of God's Word, and live daily for the Lord. And when we do these things, God's going to bless us, and we'll see the power of God. Let's stand together as we go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we come to you and we're thankful that we have a God who loves us, who sent his son Jesus to die for us, reached out to us, and we didn't reach out to you, Lord. He came into our lives and convicted us of our need and, and allowed us to just open our hearts and receive you as Lord and Savior. We're thankful for our new life. We're thankful for your presence in our heart. We're thankful for your word and for speaking to us day by day through your Holy Spirit. We just thank you for our relationship to you. We're thankful that we can come together as your family and enjoy a relationship with each other. And we pray, Lord, that that relationship with each other and the relationship we have with you will be pure and strong and mature so that we will draw those who are lost and needy into your love and forgiveness. And we will be able to magnify and glorify your name above all the false names that are proclaimed in our community. We just pray for that, Lord. We, we, we depend on you. We thank you for being our God. And we pray, Father, that we be pleasing to you in all ways. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. We're going to sing a song and just pray where you are. Is there anything in my life that's keeping me from being unified with somebody in the body? Something else I need to do for the Lord. As we just pray and talk to ourselves as uh, we have the old rugged cross. An old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame.